All right, as you're having a seat, please turn with me to Numbers chapter 13. I'm going to tell you another little story about my, my childhood. When I was a kid, I had a, had a collection of spiders. Not, not real spiders, that'd be sick, right? But I had, I had toy spiders that I, I loved to use to scare people. And I remember one incident in particular. My grandparents, the uh, grandma and grandpa Fisher, were coming down from Washington. We were living in Oregon at the time, so they drove down from Washington to stay with us. And um, I wanted to scare my grandmother. I had, I had one spider. It was kind of like a tarantula. So it was really big and rubbery, and it, it had uh, little fake hair, hairy things all over it. And it was a really nasty-looking spider. And so you know, I decided, well, I'm going to put it on top of the door frame where uh, my parents were staying in uh, my bedroom. And so when my grandmother opens the door, right, she'll just knock it off. It'll fall, and she'll freak out. It'll be awesome. And so here's a little bit of background, too. My, my grandmother, uh, Fisher, was a godly woman. I mean, an amazingly godly woman. Uh, she was a scholar. Like, she loved the word. I actually have uh, one of her commentaries on Leviticus that's just totally marked up, right? I mean, you remember I did that sermon on Leviticus. None of us study Leviticus. She had a commentary on Leviticus, highlighted, marked up, whatever. I think she gave me my first book on dispensational theology, right? So my grandmother was, she was, she was a godly woman. She was into the word. But she had, she had some uh, vocabulary baggage from her previous life, right? And so, and when, you, when she got startled, sometimes that vocabulary would come out. And I knew that. Um, I'd, I'd heard that before. And, and so I thought, this would be awesome, right? If I can really scare my grandmother, I can, I can get her to you know, say some words. It would be, it'd be awesome. It would be amazing. So sure enough, you know, I put the, put the tarantula on top of the door. And my, my grandmother came in. She hit the, hit the door. And the tarantula fell at her feet. And she did not disappoint. It was awesome. <laughs> right? Just let it go. And I go, oh, Grandma, you said a cuss word. <laughs> it was awesome. My grandmother, she's an amazing woman. She wasn't a good sport. She didn't think it was funny at all. My parents didn't think it was funny. And all of my spiders ended up in the trash. That's why I remember that particular frightening incident, right? So it's it's so fun to scare other people. And I realize, you know, I'm giving you one more little glimpse into my soul that's kind of perverse. But it's fun, right? You know, I like watching those videos where people get scared and startled, right? It's fun to scare other people. It is not fun to be scared, right? I tell my kids, do not scare me. I don't... I don't like that feeling, I like watching other people have that moment. But fear is not a pleasant emotion, is it? But it's not pleasant at all. It's not a, necessarily a bad emotion, but it's not a pleasant emotion. It's, it's not bad in the sense that sometimes right, it helps us evaluate a situation, you know, evaluate the risk in front of us and should we move forward, how should we move forward, right? So there's, there's a benefit in that sense, but sometimes fear can become overwhelming And it paralyzes us, and we lose sight of all of the resources at our disposal to lean into this frightful situation and overcome it. And I think that's especially important principle to think about in our our life of faith, because God is consistently putting us in situations that require faith. They require us to take risks, right? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. And it's frightening to move in forward in life when you, you don't see exactly how things are going to turn out. And we don't know how all things are going to turn out, do we? There's so much in life we don't get to choose. We don't get to choose uh, the family that we're born into and when we're born and our, our siblings. We don't get to choose uh, if we're tall or short or the skill set we have, the desires, the passions. We don't get to choose any of those things. We don't even get to choose the trials that we're going to face. And we will face them. That, that part is inevitable, but we don't get to pick and choose which ones we'll encounter on this journey of life. We do, however, get to choose 
where we focus our attention in the midst of frightening circumstances and whose voice we listen to. And that will determine, does faith overcome fear or does fear overcome faith, right? So if you're not there already, Numbers chapter 13, a little bit of, little bit of background. We're going to look at a really important, pivotal story in the history of Israel. It's a very young nation, right? They've just been rescued out of slavery in Egypt, but now they're at the very edge of the promised land and they have this frightening opportunity and they have to make a choice. Will they, will they lean in? Will they go forward in faith in spite of the fear or will they pull back? Will they be overwhelmed by the fearful nature of the situation? And it is, it is in fact, fearful. So um, what's going on here, background-wise, actually the book of Numbers in Hebrew, the name is uh, In the Wilderness, that's the Hebrew name for the book because it's a description of what God was doing in the nation of Israel as they were moving through the wilderness for 40 years. God's intent originally was to prepare them in the wilderness to go into the promised land. So he didn't take them on the most direct route out of Egypt and into the promised land. Instead, he, he took them at a, on a more, a more circuitous route so that he could get them ready. So the Greek name for the book is Numbers, because there's a lot of numbering in the book. That is, the, the people are numbered for war, and they're logistically organized for war, but they're also spiritually prepared as they're going through the wilderness. They see more of God's power, and they have more evidence to trust him before they go in uh, to the land. Right? So uh, what it looks like physically, I'm a, I'm a map kind of guy. This helps me visualize things. They left Egypt and went through probably the northern finger there of the Red Sea. Then they went south toward the the bottom of the Sinai Peninsula there to Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. They received the Ten Commandments there. And uh, then they've marched north to Kadesh Barnea. So they're at the very southern edge of the land of Canaan. And God says to them, I want you now to, to send spies into the land. Not to determine if you should go in. But get a sense of what the land is like so we can develop a strategy and so that the people would be motivated to go in and take this good land. So read with me in chapter 13 and verse 1. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, everyone a leader among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran at the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the sons of Israel. Now look at verse 17. Then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan. He said to them, Go up there into the Negev, then go into the hill country, see what the land is like, whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. How is the land in which they live? Is it good or is it bad? How are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or fortifications? How is the land? Is it fat or is it lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort to get some of the fruit of the land. Now, the time was the time of the first ripe grapes, so it's about July. So they went up and they spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob at Labo Hamath. So, in other words, they went from the southern edge in the Negev all the way up along the central ridge route into Lebanon and into Syria, about 250 miles up, 250 miles back. And in the process, they made uh, two discoveries. If you read verse 22, it says, Now when they had gone up into the Negev, they came to Hebron, where Ahaman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Then they came to the valley of Eskol, And from there, cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two men with some of the pomegranates and the figs. So two discoveries they made. First was that the land was incredibly fertile. And, you know, you read that 
description, you're like, okay, that's, that's got to be another like Jewish exaggeration, right? There were so many grapes that they had to put it on a pole and two men had to carry it, right? Uh, let me help you visualize this. This is possible. Right? This, uh, the picture in the middle, that's from Israel. The one on the left, I think, is Spain. But um, bas- th- this is what they encountered. Right? It, Israel's known for its grapes. It's known for its figs. It's known for its olive trees. And they went at a season when it was just incredibly fruitful. So first thing they see is, yeah, this is a rich land. They also discover that there are giants in the land. The sons of Anak, who they think descended from the Nephilim, whoever those people were from Genesis chapter 6. But they're huge. They're giants, right? Both of these data points are absolutely true. The land is incredibly fertile, and there are giants in the land in fortified cities. What do you do with those two data points? Well, ten of the spies cowered in fear. And two leaned forward in faith. And said, let's go in. What made the difference? What made the difference between leaning forward and, and pushing forward in faith or pulling back uh, in fear? One of the things I want you to take note of in particular is that uh, all of these spies were leaders among their people. But they, these, they, they selected men in particular that they, that they trusted, that were honored and respected. So we'll listen to the advice of these people. All of them had been born in Egypt. All of them had been born in slavery. All of them had seen God's miracles, right? They'd seen all of the 10 plagues through which God had decimated the most important and powerful nation on earth at that time. They'd all lived through that 10th plague of of the angel of death coming through and killing the firstborn. All of them had passed through the Red Sea, right? They had seen God open up the Red Sea and they'd walk through on dry land. Then they'd seen God pull the waters on top of the army of Egypt and decimate the whole army. They had gone into the desert and all of them had drank water from a rock and they had eaten manna, this bread off the floor of the desert, and they'd had quail in abundance, right? They had seen all of God's power. They had heard all of God's promises. And yet 10 of them crumbled. And only two of them said, yeah, let's do this thing. What was the difference? I want you to remember this, that... Fear is normal. Right? Fear is a natural emotion. Don't, we shouldn't feel guilty when we feel fear. Right? It's our response to fear that's important. Right? Of course, there are, there are um, unnatural, unreasonable fears. Right? We call those phobias. <laughs> They're just ridiculous. You shouldn't be afraid of these things. Um, one of those is, uh, I looked up this week, is xanaphobia. That's uh, the fear of the color yellow. <laughs> like, why? I don't know. I'm not afraid of yellow. When I see yellow... Man, I'm going, right? That doesn't, that kind of energizes me. Another one I thought was interesting is somnophobia. That's the fear of falling asleep. I'm never afraid of falling asleep. I love falling asleep. I can fall asleep. My family laughs at me like anywhere, right? I'm good at it. I'm not afraid of it. Omphalophobia is the fear of your navel. Some people are afraid of their, they're afraid of their navel, right? Uh, Paganophobia is the fear of beards. Maybe Beards aren't really a threat, or I mean, right? Are they? And your navel is not actually a threat. Yellow's not a threat, right? But some people have those fears. What do you do with those unreasonable fears? Well, you go to you go to therapy, right? And you learn. I don't need to be afraid of my navel unless it's yellow and looks like a beard, right? Otherwise, it's good. I don't. Right? That's unreasonable. But there are reasonable fears. Uh, some of the most uh, fearful people I've ever encountered are grooms on their wedding day. 
Right? There, there's a lot, of, a lot of tension in that moment, a lot of fear. I've, I've had several grooms who got pretty wound up. One in particular, I remember uh, we'd gotten to that point of the ceremony where I'm delivering a, a charge for, from Scripture. And, and I looked at him, and I thought, he, he doesn't look good, right? I mean, he's, he, he turned kind of pasty white. He's kind of wobbling a little bit. You know, he just, he just look, didn't look good at all. And so I was trying to be discreet, so I covered up my microphone. I leaned in. I go, hey, buddy, are you okay? Right? And he goes... I'm not okay. I am not okay at all. I do not feel good right now. I don't feel good. I need some help. I, it's like, oh man. So I look at the best man. I go, get a chair, right? Get a chair quick. So the best man brings a chair and next guy, I go, get a fan. So they got a chair and they put a fan straight on him, right? And he sat there and, and he just, and he's just rubbing his bride's hands. Like she's just bloody, right? Just rubbing, 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 you know, but he made it through, right? He made it through. sitting, right? He did his vows. He stood for a second and sat back down, but he made it through because he was afraid. And and I would say, honestly, brides and grooms should be afraid because you don't know what you're really getting into. You think you do, but you don't. You do not know. You, you You cannot imagine. You're excited and you're hopeful, but you don't know. I remember... When I, was, when I was younger, my parents at one point, they, they had a lot of trials and, and challenges early in their marriage. And they said, you know, uh, my dad had a brain tumor and there were a bunch of different things. And they said, you know, if we had known what we would face in marriage we, and God had showed it to us, we wouldn't have had the courage to even get married. Right? It, you don't know. Right? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's frightening, but there's also a lot of reason to hope, right? You, you're getting married and you get to face all these trials together. That's a really wonderful thing. Or you can lean in in faith or you can pull back in fear. What makes the difference between the two? I'm going to propose there are two, two distinguishing questions here. It's this, where, where are you looking? Right? When you confront this fearful situation, where are you looking? Where are you focusing your attention? And who are you listening to? What are the voices that are influencing the way that you're thinking and feeling and the choices that you're making. So where are you looking and who are you listening to? I want you to look in the chapter 13 again of Numbers and verse 31. It says, But the men who had gone up with Caleb and Joshua, they said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak are a part of the Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. See, what what are they focused on? They're focused on, on the obstacles, on the barriers, on the threats. They say, look, the people are strong. They're too strong. Their cities are fortified. They're giants. They're, they're the sons of Anak. They're like the Nephilim. They're huge. They're giant. And not only are they giant, but when we saw them, we felt like grasshoppers in our own sight. In fact, we were grasshoppers in their sight. And every time I read that, I think, how did they know that? How did they know what the sons of Anak were actually thinking? Did they walk up and go, hey, um, we're thinking about taking your land. We just kind of want to know, what, what do you think about that? When you see us, you go, oh, that's kind of scary. You go, no, they're, they're, they're like grasshoppers. We can handle this. Or, I mean, they're, just, they're projecting their own sense of inadequacy into the minds of their opponents. Right? They're, they're fixated on 
the difficulties and the barriers and the threats rather than on the opportunity to go in and take possession of the promised land. Where are you looking? What are you focused on? When you're fixated on the objects of your fear, it removes all capacity to see the resources that God has given you to overcome. Second, who are you listening to? Chapter 14, verse 1, it says, Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and they cried and the people wept that night. Who did they listen to? Well, you know, the majority is always going to be discouraging toward taking steps of faith. They listened to the ten and what happened? And their hearts sank. Their hearts melted. They weren't encouraged. They were discouraged. And they stayed up all night crying, weeping. And their sorrow turned to uh, frustration and anger. Verse 2, all the sons of Israel then grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? They say, we, don't, we can't trust this God. Really, the motive for which he brought us into the wilderness was to kill us. Would have been better to die in Egypt in slavery. Right? They're, they're, they're sorrowful, but then they're, they're, they're angry. Right? Their fear is just degenerating. And they're distrustful of the Lord. And then they become rebellious. Verse 4, it says, So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. We'll take care of this. Let's, let's dethrone Moses and go back. Into slavery. Right? Their, their fear has put in their minds that they'd be better off going back into slavery. Of course, Caleb and Joshua say, No, let's go take the land. But notice uh, the response, verse 10, it says, But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. And then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. Right? But do you see how this it just degenerated to the point that they're so angry. They say, let's, let's kill Moses and Aaron, Aaron and Caleb and Joshua. Grab a stone, everybody. Wow. So this, this fear just stumbled into anger. Why? Because they were listening to the voices, the discouraging voices of the ten spies. So what happens in the story? Well, God says, I should just start over again with Moses. <laughs> and I wonder, you know, for us, who are the voices that we listen to? The voices we listen to will deeply influence our, our perspective on moving forward in faith or shrinking back in fear. Um, I've told this illustration before, but it's, it's really a powerful moment in, in my life. In our early marriage, we had been married just, um, gosh, under a year. And we went and had dinner with a couple of our friends. And uh, during dinner, they'd been married several years longer than us. And during dinner, they were just kind of nicking at each other, you know, just kind of sarcastic. And, you know, they're kind of laughing, but you could tell, that's not really very funny, and it kind of hurts, and they're just going, right? And we finished dinner, and we got in the car, and all of a sudden, Trish just burst out in tears. I'm like, you know, right, we'd only been married less than a year. I'm like, okay, I should say something. What do I do? What? Uh, what's wrong? So, I mean, I was so quick. I knew something was wrong. <laughs> what, what's wrong? She goes, that's not going to be us, is it? Uh? And I go, that is not going to be us. Because we are going to have the best marriage that's ever existed in all of human history. And we're never hanging out with them again. Right? I mean, I, I can be de- decisive. Right? I'm like, no. So we, we're like, we can't, we can't handle those voices right now. 
Because that's not fellowship, that's ministry. And we can't handle that ministry right now. So we picked out four couples that we really respected their, their marriages and the way they parented, the way they interacted with one another. We said, year one, these are the people we're going to listen to. And we listened to their voices because they, they were shaping. And we were in a, a place and time where we needed to be shaped. And we, were, we, we wanted to be shaped. So you listen to those voices of discouragement. It just pulls you down, 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 right? And that's what happens. The, the children of Israel, they're, they're fearful. But then they become so discouraged that they get distrustful of God's motives. And they're angry. And God says, all right. This is the 10th time now that they've tested me. Moses... Let me just wipe them out and I'll start over with you. Remember, Moses and God have had that conversation before. God's tested Moses with this before. And again, Moses says, Lord, come on. We've talked about this before. You can't do that. Lord, if if you do that, then all the nations will hear that you were only powerful enough to bring them out of slavery, but then they died in the wilderness. You couldn't bring them in. Lord, don't do it. And the Lord says, okay, I won't. But this generation that keeps testing me, they're not going in. To my promised land. Verse 20. So the Lord said to Moses, I have pardoned them according to your word, Moses. But indeed, as I live, all of the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. You know what's going to happen? Ironically, they said we're going to die in the wilderness. They're going to die in the wilderness. And their kids that they said would die with them in the wilderness, not going to happen. I'm going to bring their children into my promised land. Now this raises a very interesting theological question, which is, can we thwart the will of God? The answer is no and yes. Ultimately, no. The Lord says this, that the whole earth will be filled with my glory. It's going to happen. And my children will enter the promised land. God's ultimate will is going to be accomplished. God says nothing's going to stand in its way. I'm going to accomplish my redemption. I'm going to accomplish my deliverance. And I'm going to bring them into the promised land. However, each generation has a choice. Will they participate in a sense in God's promises or not. Right? So this generation, they lost the opportunity to go in. In fact, they wake up the next morning and they say, whoa, 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 whoa. We changed our mind. We know it's the promised land. It's awesome. We're going in. And Moses says, no, you're not. So yeah, yeah, we are. It's okay. We're going to go in. And Moses says, don't, don't do it. If you do, you're going to get slaughtered. And they said, it's okay because God promised us to go in. He says, God told you you can't go in. So what do they do? They march up and they go in and they get slaughtered. Because right? God said, No. I gave you that opportunity and you tested me over and over and over again. You didn't believe me. You, you don't have strong enough faith to go in and conquer these enemies. Right, so understand the distinction here. This is not about salvation. Right? This is a redeemed people. Right? This is God's people. And in this moment, God is disciplining his children. So Moses didn't get to go into the promised land because of his disobedience. Aaron didn't go in, Miriam didn't go in, and none of this generation got to go in, which was not, not, not a, an indication of their salvation, right? How's a person saved? By grace through faith. Right? Abraham's the paradigm. Abraham believed God, it was credited as righteousness. This is the gospel. An absolutely free gift. All of us are born separated from God. You're born a sinner. 
The wages of sin is death. It's separation. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, right? So we're born separated from God. There's nothing that we can do to go get ourselves reconciled to God. So God says, uh, you can't live a perfect life and my standard is perfection. So I'm going to give you the perfect life of my son, Jesus. The moment that we believe, God says, now you have the righteousness of Christ. He credits Christ's righteousness in place of our unrighteousness. And we have eternal life. It is an absolutely free gift, right? There are no conditions placed upon it beforehand and there are conditions placed upon it afterwards. It is a free gift. So, you didn't earn it. You can't lose it. One of my absolute favorite passages in all of scripture is Romans chapter 8. At the end of the chapter, Paul says this, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I love it when Paul gets on a roll, right? And he just starts listing stuff, and then he kind of runs out of, I don't know what else to say, nor any other created thing, right? Which includes what? Everything but God is included in that last statement. Which means uh, Satan can't separate you You can't separate you. Once you belong to God, you belong to him forever. It's a free gift. That that is amazing. Now, God's goal for your life, though, isn't just to get you into eternal life. God's goal is to bring you to maturity, right? So the first step is that moment of faith when you believe and you belong to God and you're in his family, you're in there forever. But then God begins to stretch your faith and grow your faith and and put circumstances in your life where you have to respond in faith or you will shrink back in fear. So let me me make the distinction again. I want to illustrate for you. Imagine for just a moment that uh, going to heaven is like uh, flying from Aggieland to Houston, which I know like that's the opposite of going to heaven if you've been to Houston. But I'm just, just... Stay with the metaphor for just a minute, right? You're, you're flying from Aggieland to Houston. What are your options? Well, you could flap your arms, but no one, no one could make the journey, right? No one can personally fly themselves from Aggieland to Houston, right? What do you have to do? You have to get on a plane. So you, you go to Easterwood Airport and you arrive at Easterwood. You get a little confused. It's like, is it gate one or two? <laughs> okay, it's gate one. I go to gate one, right? At some point in time... Um, you're going down the ramp, and you have to make a choice. Do I get on the plane or not? That's that initial moment of faith. I choose to entrust myself to this plane and pilot to carry me to Houston. So you make that choice. You, you entrust yourself. The door closes. The plane takes off. Now, what is it that makes sure that you get to Houston? Your faith? No, you might be sitting on the plane, and all of a sudden you're having some fear. And you're having some doubt. What carries you is the plane, right? So faith doesn't save you. God saves you through faith. You believe. Eternal life is guaranteed. Now, God is going to move in your life. And he's going to put circumstances in your life that test your faith to grow your faith. And you will say yes in faith or you may shrink back in fear. When you shrink back in fear, you lose opportunity Right? Going into the promised land was an opportunity to enjoy all of God's blessing. So they shrank back and they missed out on the opportunity. Right? God has blessing for you. James talks about current blessing like this. He says, consider it all joy 
when you encounter various trials, not if, but when, and you don't get to choose which ones come into your life, but you will have them. You're going along your journey of life and you will encounter trials. Count them as joy. Why? Because these trials produce in you endurance and endurance produces character. Character as it's grown and matures produces a a perfection in you. Right? There's a maturity. It says that's a present gift in you. God is actually giving you moments, opportunities to grow in faith. Right? And, and if there's never a scary moment, you don't get to exercise faith. It's a gift from God. So he says, Peter, or James says, count it all joy. So there's a present benefit, a present reward. There's also a future reward when you stand in front of Jesus and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. I gave you an opportunity and you said yes. Because right? 10 of the spies, the majority, they shrank back in fear. But, but two of them leaned in, right? So not everyone was crushed with fear. There were two that were compelled by faith. They had to move forward. Look at verse 30 of chapter 13. It says, Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses, and he said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him, they said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are too strong for us. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. Verse four, so they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting. So where are you looking? Where where are you focusing your attention when you are confronted with a fearful situation? Where were Caleb and Joshua looking? Well, they looked not at the obstacles. They, They didn't ignore the obstacles, right? They knew there were giants in the land. But they looked past them to this opportunity. They said, literally in Hebrew, it's a very, very good land. They said, look, this is a very, very good land that God has promised us. Let's go in and take it. They looked at this opportunity. They looked at uh, what God had provided for them. It's a good land, and we have an opportunity when we go in to actually fulfill God's destiny for us. When when, uh, the Exodus occurred, God said to them in Exodus 19, I have redeemed you for myself. Why? So that you can be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. That is, when, when you follow me in obedience and you take steps of faith, The nations around are going to look at you and they're going to see what I'm like. They're going to see my greatness. They're going to see my power. And they're going to be overwhelmed as they they witness this tiny, small, relatively powerless group of people doing miraculous things. Because church, one of the things you need to understand is God always puts his people at a disadvantage. right? He always makes us the underdogs. You know, that, that, that is God's pattern. 2 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul says... We have this treasure that is the treasure of the gospel. We have this treasure in earthen vessels 
that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not of ourselves. In other words, we have this gospel in a fragile vessel on purpose. God makes you fragile. God makes you deficient in different areas. God makes you the underdog. When God sent uh, Gideon to deliver his people, Gideon gathers the army and God says, oh, no, that's way too many people, right? So then they have to thin the army and God looks at the army and says, no, that's still too many people. He keeps thinning the army until Gideon only has 300 warriors against tens of thousands. He says, okay, now we can go to battle. Because now you can't claim any credit. I will get all of the glory. So God always puts his people at a disadvantage, which means we're always going to be confronting fear. And looking where? At the opportunity, at the promise of God, at the power of God, not at our own weakness. Look at chapter 13, verse 2. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and he said this, Send out for yourself, Men, so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. I've been promising you this for hundreds of years. I spoke to Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a seed. I'm going to give you a blessing. Here's the seed. You've got two million people. Now it's time to go up and possess the land, experience the blessing physically, materially, but also spiritually. I've promised it. Caleb and Joshua say, God promised it. We're listening to the voice of God. We're not listening to the voice of the discouragers around us. Now, in my margin, I, have, uh, I wrote this verse. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Was the cross frightening for Jesus? Absolutely. But it was so frightening that it affected him physically to the point that his sweat came down like drops of blood. So what did Jesus do? He fixed his eyes on the joy set before him. Right? The, the promise of the Father's praise, well done, good and faithful son. So the writer of the Hebrews says, this is how you endure. Fix your eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him, fixed his eyes on the good pleasure of the Father. Right? Where do you fix your eyes? You fix your eyes ahead. Who do you listen to? Whose voice are you listening to? Who were who Caleb and Joshua listening to? They were listening to God's promises. They were listening, they were listening to one another. Right? They were listening to voices of encouragement. Another verse that I've written in my margin here is Isaiah 40, verses 22 and 23. I think you'll see why I've written it in there. It says, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. So... The spies go into the land and they go, man, we're like grasshoppers in our own eyes. We're like grasshoppers in, in uh, the sight of the people of the land, the giants. And God says, you're all grasshoppers, right? All of you look like, from where I sit, kings are grasshoppers and judges are grasshoppers and uh, peg, uh, peasants working in the field are grasshoppers. All of you are grasshoppers from my perspective. All of you. Because I'm that much greater So the Anakim, the Nephilim, grasshoppers. You just need to have a a new perspective. You need to listen to a different voice. 
So Caleb and Joshua, they, they had one another. They were a minority. And, I, and students especially, I want to say to you, the longer that you walk with the Lord, the lonelier it gets. Because okay? friends that you had uh, in college, the trials and tribulations, God tests them and they, some of them will say no. So you've got to find those men and women. You link arms and you say, come on, let's be a band of brothers. Let's be a band of sisters. Let's, let's encourage one another. Let's, let's finish the race well. Let's not just start well, but let's end well. Let's, let's be uh, together when we're 85 and 90 saying, yeah, we ran the race well. Right? You need people like that. That's why the writer of the Hebrews says this, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near, it's only going to get harder to walk with Jesus. So what do you need? You need people around you who are, who are, who are speaking truth into your life. When you're, you're facing a trial, they're saying, believe God, listen to his voice. He's powerful. Stop looking just at the obstacle. Stop looking at your own deficiency. Remember that God has made you intentionally the underdog so that he gets all of the honor and all of the glory and all of the credit. And you link arms and you finish life well together, right? That's what you need and that's what you want for one another. So what's the application uh, there's more to this story. Um, it's really the, my, kind of my favorite part of this story from the book of Joshua, chapter 14. I want you to turn there with me. Joshua, chapter 14. The children, the next generation, have now gone into the promised land, right? And they've fought many battles. They've begun to conquer some of the enemy. Uh, it's about five years into this process, right, of taking the promised land. Chapter 14 and verse 6, Caleb shows up again. It says, And the sons of Judah drew near to Joshua and Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, said to him, You know the word which the Lord spoke to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought back word to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear, But I followed the Lord my God fully. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden will be an inheritance to you and to your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God fully. Caleb goes to Joshua and he says, Hey, remember God promised. And remember Moses reiterated the promise, right? And he holds God to his promise. And what's interesting is he didn't get get frustrated. He He didn't lose hope. It's now actually 45 years later. Verse 10, it says, Now, behold, the Lord has let me live just as he spoke these 45 years. From the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses when Israel walked in the wilderness, and now, behold, I'm 85 years old today. I am still as strong today as I was in the day Moses sent me, as my strength was then, so my strength is now for war and for going out and for coming in. So in other words, Caleb had to wander in the desert 40 years for someone else's lack of faith. That would have made me like crazy grumpy, right? Seriously. I'm wandering again another year in the desert because you got scared of giants, right? And now he's actually gone into the the land 
And Caleb has battled to help other people get their land for five more years. And I think, man, why didn't you let the old guy start first, right? But no, he's been battling helping other people take their land for five years. And he shows up to to, uh, Joshua and he says, hey, remember the promise. It's time, right? I'm 85, but I'm still still charging, man. I'm still driving, right? I want to go. I want to take the land. And his faith hasn't diminished. His faith has actually grown. Look what it says in verse 12. It says, now then give me this hill country about which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day that Anakim were there with great fortified cities. Perhaps the Lord will be with me and I will drive them out as the Lord has spoken. See what he's saying? Saying, I want that very piece of land that made everyone else scared. That's what I want for the inheritance. I want, I want the hardest property to conquer. I want the hardest enemies to conquer. I want the land of Hebron. I want the place where the Anakim are. I want the place where the Nephilim are. Perhaps God will drive them out in front of me. Or I'll die trying. I'm like, yeah, what, Caleb. I just love Caleb. That's how I, that's how I want to finish life. Right? And not surprisingly, it's infectious. Caleb passes this legacy on to his family. Look at chapter 15 and verse 16. It says, Caleb said, the one who attacks Kiriat Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, as a wife. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, captured it, so he gave him Aksa, his daughter, as a wife. It came about when she came to her father, she persuaded him, or she came to her husband, she persuaded him to ask her father for a field. So she then alighted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, my daughter, what do you want? She said to her father, give me a blessing. Since you have given me the land of the Negev, give me also the springs of water. So he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. See what's happening? His daughter says, hey, you gave me the best of the land. I want the springs too. Give me, give me more. Give me the best. So Caleb, you know, he's like, I got to find a husband for my daughter. And she's amazing. Not just any man can handle my daughter because she wants more, right? So the only person who can actually marry my daughter is a man who can conquer a city. Right? That's, that's his test. It's a, I love that, right? Men, be a man who conquers a city. Women, be a, a woman who wants the springs. You want more. You want the best of the best. Jaswald Sanders says, the Lord loves spiritual ambition. Right? And link arms with people who say, yeah, let's finish well. Let's lean in in faith in the midst of all of those frightening circumstances. Let's finish well. So my question for you this morning is this. What, what are the frightening opportunities maybe that God has put in front of you right now. It might be as simple as sharing your faith. You know that uh, 80 Christian, 80% of Christians have never shared their faith once. Now, I don't say that to you just to shame and guilt you. <laughs> I say that because there's an opportunity in front of us, church. That's the center of our lane. We have all of eternity to worship. But we won't be doing evangelism and discipleship in heaven. Right now is our moment. It's an opportunity. Don't shrink back in fear. Right? And it is frightening, right? You may, you may speak a word and someone rejects you, someone ridicules you. They may ask a question that you don't have the answer to. Right? It's a step of faith. But just imagine as we're, we're entering into the holidays, as you go home for Thanksgiving or you go home for Christmas and you're with friends and family who don't know Jesus if you just found through the power of the Spirit the courage to say, Let, let's talk about Jesus. Can I tell you about what God's been doing in my life? Imagine if we took that 
step of courageous faith. Some of us would see not rejection, but a response. Some of us would come home and say, you know what? There are 10, there are 15, there are 20, there are hundreds of people. Just because a few hundred of us said, we're going to take a courageous step of faith. Maybe that's, maybe that's the simple step of courageous faith God's calling you to. Maybe uh, it's a step of forgiveness. Again, we enter into the holidays and you're going to go back into relationships, some of you that are really hard, and God may say, I want you to extend forgiveness. I want you to extend grace. You go, that's going to make me feel really vulnerable again. God, will you protect me? Or maybe God's saying, I want you to give your time. Will I have enough for me? Maybe God's saying, I want you to give of your, your wealth, your abundance, maybe your skill set. I want you to give. Well, will there be enough left for me? Well, do you trust God? If you take that step of faith and give, maybe God's calling you um, to a new career. Saying, you know what, this is not where I want you. This is not my best for you. And he's saying, pull up. Maybe God's saying, it's time for a new city. It's time for a new job. Maybe God's saying, it's time for a new country. Maybe you're that one who leaves and goes to the nations. I I actually had a friend who's on the mission field and God called him off and it was the hardest decision he ever made because it's just where he wanted to be, but he was listening in obedience and taking a step of faith. Maybe God calls some off the field. Maybe he's calling you onto the field. Maybe he's calling you to a new job, to a new career. He's calling you to just, again, take a simple step of faith and say, can I talk to you about Jesus? I don't know what God is challenging you to, but I promise you that for each and every one of us, before the end of the year, God is going to put something in front of you and you're going to have to say yes or no to the Lord. And so I want you to ask yourselves these questions. Where am I looking? Where am I looking? What am I looking at right now? Am I looking just at the obstacles and the frightening things in front of me? Or am I looking at the opportunity? And am I I looking forward to that opportunity to hear the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. Who am I listening to? Am I listening to the promises of God and seeing his power? Am I listening to voices around me who say, yeah, we can do this. We can live faithfully to the end. One of my uh, heroes of of the faith is a lady named Corey Tenboom. She and her family hid Jews in their home in Holland during um, World War II. Her biography, if you've never read it, I had a lady come up afterwards, she'd never read it, it's called The Hiding Place. Wonderful biography, and she made this statement. She said, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Isn't that good? Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. And we don't know the future, and that's what's frightening, but God is known. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be courageous people. I pray that we would end well like Caleb and Joshua. I pray that as we're confronted with frightening situations, we would lean in. Faith would overcome our fear. I pray, Father, in particular, that we would see the incredible opportunity that we have to speak words of life to friends and family. I pray, Father, for opportunities before this year ends to extend forgiveness, to serve with our time and with our talents, with our treasures. I pray, Father, that we would not hold back because of fear, but we would trust you to provide for us in each and every situation. Lord, I pray that um, we would not be paralyzed. I pray, Father, that we would not be uh, alone. I pray, Father, in particular, if there are any sitting here who feel like they're walking through this journey alone, that you would provide for them a band of brothers, a band of sisters, other men and women, to finish this journey well. And Father, I thank you that that's a promise from you. We have the power of the Spirit, and we have the hope of your promises. Father, I thank you that eternal life is a free gift that we're not earning. But we we serve you and we labor in, in confidence and hope. 
not in fear. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great uh, faith-filled, not fear-filled week. We'll see you next week.